online marketing is a huge umbrella term and I do performance advertising. That's like what I do, which is I, you give me a dollar, I give you back two. That's my goal in life, right? Um, in performance marketing, there's a few things that drive me crazy. One, the ads are not in the right person's hands. So kind of an underinvestment play of like, okay, we're going to give this to our um, MBA intern. That MBA intern is not set up for success and they do not have the pattern recognition it takes to play Google the right way. That's one thing. Another thing is businesses that start stop ads. Welcome to the Business Ownership Podcast, brought to you by Awareness Strategies, helping you navigate the waters between entrepreneurship and ownership. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I'm super glad that you're here with us today because I am here with my most amazing guest, Sharon. Sharon, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Awesome. So give us a highlight of who you are and what you do for business. Sure. So I come from a little bit of a different background. Um, I worked for Google for 10 years and went on an amazing journey there, but took that leap of faith, uh, wrote a check of belief into myself and started Sage Digi in 2018. This is, I'm now starting my sixth year as the CEO of a digital advertising company. And I specialize in helping small businesses grow to medium and large size businesses through advertising. I love it. So how did you get into advertising as a thing? How did you make that uh, thing? Uh, that's um, what I do now didn't exist when I was in college. At UCLA, I was a violin performance and history major. I went to pursue a PhD in history at the University of Virginia. And there by luck, I met a friend who was an early employee at Google. And so wanting to take a year off from my PhD, course, I went to Google and I started off very entry level. Um, and it, this is a shout out to my fellow folks on the 866 hotline. I answered the AdWords 866 hotline for seven hours a day and um, started my career learning how to pitch and sell ads. Wow. Basically, I wanted to do it as a break, but I totally fell in love with it. Oh, that's awesome. So what would you say is what's the most intriguing aspect of it for you? I think it was problem solving in a dynamic way. And so I would pick up the hotline. You have no idea who's going to be on the other line. But um, one day a woman called in. She said that she represented a company called Pandora.com. They do streaming radio. Do you remember that? Yes. <laughs> and they wanted to run ads that targeted people like myself, office workers who want to put in headphones and listen to music as they worked. And then they served some ads and made money that way. And I helped her get started. And we grew that account into a million dollar quarterly account. And their business took off. I think their profitability was really high. And she was just so appreciative. I was appreciative of her because I hit my sales quota. <laughs> it's that kind of like problem solving and, you know, having the flexibility and faith of the company that I didn't have to sell what I didn't want to. Awesome. So when you were working with businesses, did you find that there was anything in particular that was kind of a green light to you that you're like, oh yeah, this is going to be awesome. Like whether it was the owner's attitude or if it was the product or the service or like, was there anything that they had in common when, when you could Definitely. hear the pitch? I think, you know, now that I'm 
17 years into this business, yeah. we can feel a rocket ship when we see it, which is the product market fit is yeah. one thing. Um, the second is like how much inbound requests do they have? And the third might be how mature a product or service is. Really, businesses that are just barely starting out, their services are not yet completely stitched together. It's not a well-oiled machine. And so it's kind of hard to get new clients to start. But once a business hits like year three, year four, and some of that customer feedback has been implemented, then we know that we're ready to go. Nice. I love it. So what made you decide to go and and on your own and start your own business? You know, there's two sides to that. One is I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My father had a software consulting company many, many years ago. Um, and he ran that for a long time. And I he enjoyed a lot of flexibility in his schedule. My sister owns a sushi restaurant. My brother is a wealth management advisor. I mean, we all come. Oh, my mom had a daycare, hugely successful because she's a pediatric nurse. So why wouldn't you want your, her to take care of your baby? You know, hugely successful business. Um, and so I guess that's in us. It's also as a Korean American, we love having our own businesses. But something else happened. I was in an accident and a surfboard hit my head and I was unable to hold my head up for a very long time. I had to go on medical leave and go on bed rest for like 18 weeks. And in that wow. agony, there's a lot of exploration. And I told myself, if and when I get up out of this bed, I will work for myself. Wow. That is crazy awesome congratulations one thank you <laughs> surviving it and getting out thank you it's I mean it's really hard to leave Google I had many friends there a very supportive management team um Google has taught me a lot and they've catapulted me into the future in terms of where technology is going but there just comes a time it, there comes a time for every entrepreneur where it's you know it's now or never Nice. Well, we'll definitely get into that a little bit later. But okay. right now, so when, when you're working with your clients, who would you say is your ideal client or who comes to you the most often? My ideal client, these are companies that are doing 10 million plus in sales. Mm -hmm. They have around 100, 150 employees. They span everything from B2C retail sales all the way up through like software, um, like HR software, enterprise grade software solutions. We do the entire gamut. I'd say our specialty though is B2B because B2B marketing is very tricky. There's a very long sales cycle. Typically 12 months is an average B2B sales cycle. So we have to track from the moment someone clicks to the time they sign a contract, which could take a year. Right. So well, we and specialize in that. Mm -hmm. That is super cool to me because oftentimes when somebody's talking B2B, they're also talking about having a salesperson involved. So is that part of that equation or no? Or Absolutely. The salesperson's feedback in the quality of leads that we're delivering them is super important. So after around a couple of months of our ads being live, so these are Google ads, right? Someone's yep. searching for best HR software. They click on your ad, fill out a form and download some free piece of content. Then the salesperson's following up. They'll mm -hmm. give us feedback. Like these leads seem small. 
or one is like uh, sometimes they get kind of spammy emails, something that nobody would ever answer. So we make adjustments. That salesperson's feedback is very, very important. And also we consult them on how they can automate their process. Nice. So if the, salesperson, yeah, if the salesperson <laughs> is not following up within minutes, someone is Googling something else. Mm-hmm. So the timing of that needs to be automated. Thank you for downloading. Someone's going to call you within X minutes. Nice. Love that. Well, and I think in, in consumer sales, people understand that when somebody is looking for, you know, eyelashes or you know something that yeah. they want, they want it right now, right? They're not going to wait for a, a year to get it. But I would think that when somebody is looking up, you know, wind turbines, maybe they're not kind of on the hunt as, as as quickly as, you know, I need Amazon to deliver a turbine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Folks who are making like industrial grade purchases, there are a lot of stakeholders at play. They're also not ready to pull the trigger right now. Mm -hmm. So in B2B marketing, we really advise people to build trust through their ads, give them free content, white papers, case studies, testimonials, for many months, you have to keep that drip going and the leads do close. Wow. So somebody was talking a while ago about there being the right amount of kind of testimonials and white papers research that somebody can do. It's kind of like not enough wasn't enough, too much is too many. How do you know what to deliver with people? That's a great question. It's both art and science, but let the customers lead. You know, if people are unsubscribing at that third email, maybe like, you know, slow down your cadence. But what I like to do in the first email is say, you've now subscribed to a free five email series. These are the five emails you're going to get this day, this day, this day. So they know what they're going to see. They can unsubscribe if they want. Mm-hmm. But this content, it should be growing in, you know, how punchy it is and how much value they deliver every week. So I think, you know, I've even seen eight email sequences that have maybe a 50% deliverability rate, which is huge. Wow. Yes, that's phenomenal. So would you say that there's a difference in particularly B2C to B2B and their ad structure and um size of the companies and what's going on or is it predominantly one or the other you just see and b2b are very different when it comes to digital marketing b2c you get a lot of feedback there's we have a ton of data and the sales cycle is short unless you're selling cars you know like 20 dollars items um, and typically in b2c that your ability to optimize is huge In B2B, it's all about setting up your data the right way. So when you connect, for example, your CRM directly into your ads platform, when someone signs a signature and a deal closes, that sends data right back to Google. This person who clicked on this keyword and read this blog post closed. That's super valuable first-party data. And that connection needs to happen. It's B2B. It's super important that all the data points are connected the right way. Nice. I love that. What would you say, is there anything that in the industry of online marketing that you've seen other companies do that that drives you crazy? And you're like, oh, people knew not to do that (laughs) or not to look at that or not to otherwise. 
That's a great question. Online marketing is a huge umbrella term and I do performance advertising. That's like what I do, which is I, you give me a dollar, I give you back two. That's my goal in life, right? Um, in performance marketing, there's a few things that drive me crazy. One, the ads are not in the right person's hands. So kind of an underinvestment play of like, okay, we're going to give this to our um, MBA intern. That MBA intern is not set up for success and they do not have the pattern recognition it takes to play Google the right way. That's one thing. Another thing is businesses that start stop ads. They're really hamstringing themselves because if you have a 12 month sales cycle, then why is your ads test 30 days? How will you know? How will you know that you're making it to the end of that sales cycle? So that lack of commitment and understanding, I think is something that entrepreneurs should really consider. Think about your sales cycle and at a minimum, that's how long you have to run ads, but give it to the right hands. Nice. Okay, there's that. a third, if I can. A Absolutely. Third, <laughs> picking up that, that salesperson from Google. Now Google, they outsource a lot of their sales to third-party vendors who say they're calling from Google, but they're not actually Google employees. So the knowledge levels are different. And they're advising people to make changes, like use a broad match keyword. Never, ever use a broad match keyword unless you're insanely wealthy. <laughs> you want more control than that. You want more control. So yeah, don't take their word as, as the right move. Right. So how would somebody know whether or not somebody is Google employees or third party? You can ask I them. I assume it's obvious, but <laughs> you can straight up ask them. I'm like, so are you officially a Google employee or are you a third party vendor? All right. I wasn't sure if there were people out there that were kind of trying to pull a fast one and go, oh, well, well they'll have an at google.com email, but the okay. vendors have that too. Yep. Um, and sometimes just say like, yeah, what office do you sit in? They can right. tell you. Um, but even Google employees, they have quotas. Hmm? And so they're here to sell. They're here to sell on a feature. They're here, they're here to sell you on some, on something no matter how nice they are and how trustworthy they are, you got to read between those lines. Right. Well, and I often found it entertaining before I got into doing Google ads for clients going, like, obviously we want to make you money. That's the whole point. <laughs> if you're making money, then we're making money. Everybody's making money and everybody's happy. Yeah. But some people treat it a little more transactionally than that. And it, it it is really about, hey, you can pay us to do your ads and they may or may not work which is very different to me than we are going to assess your market and and attempt to connect with them and we'll get feedback from your market. And this may take six months. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about kind of the difference between transactional um, ad spends, if you want to put it that way, and actually kind of figuring out that art and science of how Google ads actually work. Absolutely. I think, you know, most freelancers who are charging around $75 to $100 an hour to get your ads set up and running, they're going to do just that. Um, that's the transactional side. But you want to work with people who have a program. So as you can go ahead and ask your vendors, and let me know if this is what you were asking, but ask, yeah. ask them, like, what are you going to do post-click? Is it just all hands-off? 
because we want you to share a goal with us. All companies have quarterly goals. Share those with your ads person and have them carry that goal. The opening slide of every weekly recap should be, hey, this is the goal and this is what we're marching towards. Nice. Love it. So when you're working with somebody, what would you say is your favorite part of the business for you? Oh, I love founders. I'm, I'm a founder too. I have huge empathy for the fear cycle that we have to go through mm-hmm. and also those wins that come. You know, you can have up days and down days. Sometimes there's a huge update that we share together. I know that you said your, you know, ROI goal was 250%. Um, this month it's 12,000%. Is that good? <laughs> we do share those moments yeah. and it takes a journey or, you know, remember that creative we were testing previously, your creative click-through rate was around 2%. This new one is 20%. So that's good. You know, um, getting those wins together and just seeing them build their businesses up. One of our early customers started by spending $5,000 a month on Google ads, which was a stretch. It was a leap of faith. Today, we spend $750,000 a month on ads. Wild. Huge journey. When it makes sense, it makes sense, right? So a lot of times I... Let's start the conversation with it's either a money conversation or a time conversation. And you got to decide which one you want as a business owner, because there's a fine line there. Um, does it make in your eyes and experience, does it make more sense to start smaller and, and kind of gain into where they want to be? Or are there times when it makes sense to just kind of throw money at the problems? How do you approach that balance with your clients? Yeah. It depends on how the business is financed. Um, I think venture-backed companies can start a bit larger. Bootstrapped companies, I have a bootstrapped company. You got to start with what you have. Um, and so I leave that completely up to the business owner to make that to make that decision. For startups, I ask, do you have a 24-month runway? And if you don't, this may not be the season for you to launch large ad campaigns. It's just, you know, the environment has changed for them. Um, and you know starting with a reasonable ads budget I would say for a bootstrapper could be five thousand dollars a month measure your success as soon as possible and take it from there but you have to commit to many months though it's not like a 30 days on and off right well and so a lot of people get very confused about this running ads thing and mm. and why Google wants to run ads. I, and I totally get that it's, <laughs> you know, they're looking at their business and how they run their, you know, what would they do if they ran for 24 months? But they don't really understand the whole algorithm aspect to Google ads. So um, I, I want to have a, a long conversation about this, not just kind of the short answers of it. So I'll give you kind of where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. It's a, a lot of companies will have events that they want to market, right? So they might have a grand opening and then they have a client mm. appreciation day and then a something, something, and they'll run, you know, the 30 day ads to those things as opposed to 30 day ad or as opposed to like a year long ad towards the mm. actual sales that they're wanting to commit to. In your opinion, which one works better? Which one makes more sense? Should they be doing ads to opt-ins and events, so to speak, or... Should it just be to the the sales side of yeah. things? And we have a lot of customers that do that. And that's a great point. 
So there will always be an evergreen component to your advertising. That should, you're always on your brand names, your key core services, your different market differentiators. That's, that's your evergreen campaign. Now these flighted campaigns are important, but something you should know, it takes two weeks for Google's algorithm to settle in. Up until that point, you're throttled based on how much you can serve your ad. So a 30-day runway is a good one before your event. So for example, one of our clients, they do recruiting events all over America. Mm -hmm. And so about 45 days pre-event, we're selling tickets, we're bringing in vendors. Um, and that's a good time to have your flighted campaigns. But you can use those same keywords that you use for one event take the best performing ones and replicate them for the next one, right? There's like a lot of learning that you could move throughout these different events. I just love it. Well, and I know our audience is going to have 12 million questions for you, which is awesome. Um, but can you give us an example of a Cinderella story of one of your clients? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> Cinderella story. I mean, everybody loves a princess in a fairy tale, right? <laughs> Exactly. So one example is that same client I told you about. Mm -hmm. They were um, pre-series A startup. So seed funding, they're collecting. Seed funding is hard because you're collecting checks from your friends and family. Mm -hmm. And they're investing, taking a leap of faith and giving me someone that they just met and vetted $5,000 a month to run their ads. What we found that when we go directly for their product is that those keywords are very expensive and couldn't really do much with 5,000. However, this product had features like side doors for customers to come in from. Those keywords cost 30% of the main ones. And so through that testing, we're able to actually acquire a lot of customers for less than what we originally thought. That became a virtuous cycle. We went from 3K to 10K, COVID hit. We went to zero for several months as the whole world tried to figure out what was going on. A few months later, they decided to run ads again and they were able to close a series A and now a series B. I believe this series B was about $60 million. And with that, there's plenty of runway for the team to grow. The team size has doubled throughout those years. I think they're well on their way to an IPO. Um, and now we can see from original data that the, the cycle of acquiring customers is becoming very profitable. Nice. I love that. Always, always great to hear the success stories of when when people make a big, because I know it's as an entrepreneur, it's it can be very daunting to make mm -hmm. those risk choices and going, you know, this could go really good. <laughs> Totally oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It took us four years for me, someone who sells ads to have the money to run my own ads for my business. So, you know, like, just don't go through that cycle of like, oh, I'm never going to make it. You will make it. It's just a matter of when. I love that. So what are some of the stumbling blocks that somebody might be having that's listening to this and going, oh my God, Sharon, I need you so badly. Oh, geez. Stumbling blocks could be like, I just, my website isn't perfect or my lead forms aren't there yet, or I haven't hired a digital marketing director yet. So when all of those things happen, that perfect day will never come. I'm telling <laughs> you now. 
So just work with us. We will consult you. We'll fill in your talent gaps for the time being. And when that digital marketing director or VP does come in, they're going to inherit a beautiful bolt-on profit-making machine. It takes time. And so if the funds are there, then now is the time. Nice. Well, I would also say that if if there's... Um... Well, actually, I'll let you into this. So if somebody's got their business idea, they've got a core business, but they're like, ah, this online marketing thing is really different. I don't know what an opt-in is. I don't know what kind of events we should be throwing. I don't know what kind of, like what leads into the the purchase. And it's mm-hmm. the thing. At what point would you recommend that they connect with you to um, to start that conversation? Yeah, it's a bit early to start throwing money at it if you don't know what cycle is acquiring customers. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be doing, you know, your lean methodology testing and trying all sorts of different ways. Mm-hmm. Once you have a steady idea of like from lead to sales to close, you know what that flow of traffic is. And it could be minimal, talking one deal a month, but you see that there's a machine that's beginning to work. That's when it's time to throw ads. That's like throwing gas on the fire and you can make that cycle work faster. I love it. So I know our listeners are going to want more from you. How do they start their com- that journey with you? Oh, thank you. I mean, you can go to our website, sagedigi.com. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a way to connect with us right there. There you can chat with me directly. Um, or you can go to my LinkedIn, Sharon Park. You can find me on LinkedIn, connect with me. I love connecting with people there and go ahead and shoot me a line. Nice. We will, of course, have all of Sharon's links in the notes so you can scroll down, click on those, make sure you click on the new tab because we got more conversations coming up. So you had mentioned earlier that you're, you come from a family of entrepreneurs and that in that moment of kind of hanging out in bed, <laughs> realizing, hey, I, I want to start my own company. Would you say that that's when you realized that you were that special kind of crazy enough to become an entrepreneur or did the bug bite earlier? Than we that? all know that entrepreneurs are crazy and we got that <laughs> bug bite early, right? <laughs> When I was little, I would go and play violin out on the streets at like Pier 39 in San Francisco and make money. I'm talking for like a seven-year-old, I'm talking serious money. Um, I also had a string quartet growing up and we would charge, I wrote contracts and we would go to weddings all up and down Silicon Valley. My dad would drive, like drop us off in our blue van. And I was like, dad, just like drop me at the corner. Like, I don't want my customers to see you. <laughs> but Aww. we would do a hundred dollars an hour per person. This is in the 90s. So we were like cranking money and I really like food. So I would write in the contract that if the gig is during meal hour, the musicians have to be fed. Nice. Win. Um, and like, Smart kid. Uh, it's much more than a lemonade stand like that. I like, right? that we did when I was like five, but I'm like, we're moving <laughs> on from this lemonade stand and making money. Somebody told me that if you run a business, don't run one that makes like $1 per transaction, make one that makes a million per transaction. So you only really need a couple. So we're not there at that level, but that's the goal. I love it. You have been absolutely awesome. Any last words for our peeps? Oh, just keep going. Keep going. If you feel like this is a down day for you, no, tomorrow will be an update. Don't ever quit. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know how valuable it is. Thank you, Michelle. Heaps of thank this is Michelle Nedlock. Like, thank you for being here with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. We love helping entrepreneurs grow. 
Are you running a business over seven figures but still struggling with technology headaches? Pay attention. You do not want to miss this offer. This podcast episode is brought to you by Awareness Strategies, who is offering a custom-built digital adoption roadmap for anyone running a business over seven figures who's wanting to grow their business in the next five years. And it's not just a roadmap. They offer full implementation as well. If that scares the out of you, check out awarenessstrategies.com forward slash roadmap for more details today. The link's in the show's notes. Don't regret not doing this. Do it now. That's awarenessstrategies.com slash roadmap.